Welcome to episode 120 of FBI Retired Case File Review with Jerry Williams. I'm a retired agent writing crime fiction inspired by true crime FBI cases. Today, we get to speak to retired agent Alfred Finch, who served in the FBI for 22 years. During his career, he was assigned to a variety of investigative and executive positions, handling public corruption, kidnapping, extortion, bank robbery, and terrorism cases. In this episode, Al Finch reviews his investigation of a 1988 plane crash that took the lives of Pakistani President Zia, a U.S. ambassador, and 28 others. Al Finch found himself involved in international intrigue and misinformation when possible evidence that the Pakistani C-130 crash was an accident was suppressed and the unproven theory that the cause was a terrorist event was put forward instead. Al Finch finished his career in the FBI as the legal attache to Cairo and later as deputy chief with the U.S. National Central Bureau of Interpol. Upon retiring from the FBI, he became a contract employee assigned to the National Counterterrorism Center. He later served as director of security for the Middle East Broadcasting Network in Springfield, Virginia, where he set up security apparatus for all radio and television employees and the physical plants that housed them. He is currently a contract employee with the Voice of America. This is a really interesting case review because it shows that not all FBI cases are resolved. This case, as a matter of fact, is still pending and active. But before we get to the interview, I just have to tell you that the month of June will be a month of anxiety and anticipation for me. At the end of the month, not only will I become a grandmother, yes, I know, I'm way too young to be a grandmother. My daughter, Dana, is having my first grandchild. So we're anxiously anticipating that blessed event. And also at the end of the month, my second crime novel, Greedy Givers, will be published. So it's going to be a crazy busy month. One other thing that I did that's going to happen at the end of the month is that I was actually interviewed for FBI Retired Case File Review, the host of Twisted Philly, my good podcasting friend, Dina Marie, interviewed me. She did a fantastic job. She really did her homework. I am very anxious about that interview because she got me to reveal some personal things about my career in the FBI that I wasn't planning to. Hopefully I won't edit that out, but what a month June has been and will be. These are exciting times. It's so good to be me. I want to make sure that if you're not already, that I invite you to be a member of my reader team. When you sign up for my reader team, once a month, I will send out a digest of the previous month's podcast episodes, my crime fiction and crime drama recommendations. I'll keep you up to date on the FBI and books, TV and movies. 
As a matter of fact, the June issue is about the new FBI TV show by Dick Wolf, the creator of Law and Order. That will premiere this fall. So if you want to learn more about that, please check out my June reader team email. When you join my reader team, you'll get a copy of the FBI reading resource, which is a list of books about the FBI written by some of the FBI agents who have been featured on this podcast. My book, Pay to Play, of course, is there, in addition to more than 35 other books written by FBI agents. Crime fiction, crime thrillers, true crime, and memoirs. All you need to do to get that is to join my reader team by going to my website, jerrywilliams.com, and signing up when you see the pop-up. One last thing. Don't forget to subscribe to FBI Retired Case File Review on Apple Podcast or your favorite podcast app. Thank you. Now here's the show. I am excited to introduce my guest, Al Finch. Hi, Al. How are you? I am doing well, Jerry. How are you? I'm doing great. I am really fascinated by the case that we're going to be talking about today because, you know, I'm a a crime fiction writer, and this case reads like a mystery thriller. It has all kinds of international intrigue and misinformation, and I think it would make a great book if one day somebody wanted to write one. So why don't you start us off and, and give us an idea where this case takes place and your role in the investigation. Okay. During August of 1988, a C-130 crashed in a desolate area in the country of Pakistan, located in Southeast Asia. Aboard the plane was the president of Pakistan, Zia El Haq, as well as the U.S. ambassador to Pakistan, Arnold Rafel. The FBI at the time was relatively new in getting involved in extraterritorial homicide-type investigations and acts of terrorism to include hostage takings and criminal kidnappings for ransom in, this, in, the, in South America. During that particular month in 1988, I was assigned to the extraterritorial squad at the Washington Field Office as a relief supervisor. When we heard about the crash and received news reports that the government of Pakistan was claiming that it was an act of of sabotage and that perhaps the Russian KGB or the Israeli Mossad was behind the crash and and that an explosive was probably placed aboard the aircraft in some manner, shape, or form, and perhaps even concealed in a carton of mangoes, which is an indigenous fruit to Pakistan. The FBI at the time in the Washington field office recognized the fact that a U.S. citizen was aboard the the, the C-130 and that it would be our responsibility to conduct an investigation to determine, first of all, if indeed it was an act of terrorism, and secondly, who would be behind such a dastardly attack aboard a C-130 cargo plane that would blow up in midair, kill the president of Pakistan, 
and the U.S. ambassador assigned to Pakistan. Well, the management of the FBI did seek permission to travel to Pakistan during August of 1988, but for some reason or another, we were told that the State Department would not grant us country clearance to come to Pakistan shortly after the crash to commence an investigation. Some nine or ten months later, our requests continued to be heard loud and clear by members of Congress who finally convinced the State Department to grant the FBI country clearance to send investigators into Pakistan to basically pick up the pieces of where the investigation was some nine months later. Why did they deny your initial request? Well, we had received the the authorization to investigate terrorist attacks overseas in the 1980s, and the jurisdictional disputes were still going on between the FBI and the U.S. Department of State, and in this case, even the U.S. military, because the investigation actually would be the responsibility of the investigative authorities in the country where the attack or the murder would occur. Was Pakistan open to the FBI coming and and doing this investigation? There was no objection registered by the government of Pakistan to the FBI coming into Pakistan shortly after the crash. I mean, that's, that's on the record. It was the U.S. Department of State who basically denied the country clearance for us to travel to Pakistan to participate in the investigation. So some eight months later, I was tasked, along with another agent, to travel to Islamabad, which is the capital city of Pakistan, obtain a briefing from the investigative team, which consisted of U.S. Air Force representatives as well as Pakistani Air Force officials and Pakistani intelligence and law enforcement officials. We received a briefing, and we were told that we could review the evidence that was collected, including the forensics and the like. We met with a number of witnesses who were present at the or near the crash site in near Bahawalpur, Pakistan, where the temperature, by the way, rises to perhaps 135 to 140 degrees Fahrenheit during the day. Wow. And um, basically we're told that the plane took off, that it flew erratically, and it came down in a a vertical spiral and crashed. No one actually heard or saw an explosion until the aircraft collided with the ground. From there, in consultation with U.S. Air Force investigative officials who were part of a Air Force disaster team that had investigated a number of C-130 crashes around the world, we received perhaps the best briefing you know, for the possible cause of the crash. However, we were further told that there was an agreement that was struck that the government of Pakistan would actually control the reason for the crash or whatever decision was made as to what caused the crash, the government of Pakistan would have that responsibility and that we could not countermine or countermand any decision that they arrived at.
we basically spent two weeks in Pakistan, talked to a number of intelligence officials, looked at their rationale for the theories that were being put forward. Was it the Russians? Was it the Israelis? Or was it some third sinister force from another country that may have had a grudge against President Zia? Now, were they even considering uh, pilot error or mechanical uh, issues? Were those under consideration at all, or was everybody assuming it was an act of uh, terror? The Pakistani officials just basically assumed that it was a terrorist attack, and you know, no matter what the evidence may have shown, or if it, if it uh, came to some other possibility, then it really did not register with them. The theory of the mango bomb was perhaps the biggest um, cause of the crash, according to their report. But as I said, we basically had to accept whatever their decision was. And even though we had an American citizen, namely the ambassador to Pakistan, killed aboard the C-130 as well, we were basically placed in a position where we had no forensic evidence, which we would have been able to obtain shortly after the crash if we had been allowed to come into the country in August of 1988 and perhaps reconstruct the aircraft, uh, do forensics exam for possible explosive residue, determine if a uh, plastic explosive was used, was it dynamite, was it nitroglycerin, or exactly what it was. I mean, we would have been able to test for those type substances. However, given the inability to perform our normal type forensic exam, we were basically left with what had been reviewed by the investigative team from the Pakistan and the U.S. Air Force. Well, let me ask you, were they as skilled and trained and experienced as the FBI investigators? I know there were a number of airplane bombings and, and crashes during that time period. Did they have the same type of experience that our teams had to do this kind of work? Uh, no, they did not. They did not have a trained EOD-type team, explosive ordnance detail, uh, forensic-type, or an ATF-type team that could test for uh, explosive residue and, and uh, other indicators of an actual placement of an explosive device aboard the aircraft. That that was not done. They were very, would be very limited in obtaining any type of forensics in that area. The most that probably could be done was to look at some burn pattern that may uh, occur when an explosion goes off and there was really no indication that there was any burn pattern anywhere on, on aboard the aircraft. It was just basically a theory as to what caused the crash. And as I said earlier, we basically were put in a position where we could not doubt their conclusion or make any conclusions otherwise, because first of all, we did not have the forensics to back up any um, uh, type of a, of, a, of a alternative reason as to why the aircraft crashed. 
Can um, I go back just a step because, and I should have asked this at the time, but I'm I, what what keeps bothering me is I know you talked about there being some type of agency friction, but I can't for the life of me understand why the State Department would deny the FBI access if they are if they are aware that you have expertise that is needed then why not let the FBI come to Pakistan and jointly work on this investigation with the Pakistani officials and the Air Force? To give an answer to that particular question, I would perhaps have to delve into classified information, which um, I have no knowledge as to whether or not it has been declassified this many years later. So I would just prefer not to present the FBI's theory as to why we were blocked from coming in during August of 1988 and that it wasn't until July 1989 that we did arrive on the scene. Yeah, see, I told you this was like an international mystery novel because, you know, my mind is going all kinds of places with that statement. But I definitely understand and uh, respect your decision not to, uh, to go any further. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's just a matter of the fact that when something is classified, there are reasons for national security and the like as to why it's classified. And um, to deviate from the classification, you really have to cross a lot of hurdles and the like to obtain a declassification opinion. Or should I say something that's suitable for dissemination, as as, as we say in the trade. And I, I have not seen anything that has been suitable for dissemination other than a very lengthy freedom of information request with a lot of redaction, um, you know, involving the investigation and the like. Let's go in a little deeper then as to what you were able to obtain access to as you came in eight or nine months later to do your review. What exactly were you looking at? remnants from the plane or were you only able to read written reports i was only a, i was only able to read written reports and and interview some of the investigators who had arrived there earlier and interviews of the actual u.s air force team uh who were there on the scene were no longer there uh, i had to travel to places like uh, macon georgia to go to the lockheed i'm sorry to the uh C-130 facility uh, south of Macon, Georgia. I think it's Robbins Air Force Base down there. And I went to Scott Air Force Base in Illinois, as well as out to Tinker Air Force Base in Oklahoma. I traveled as far as Riverside, California, to track down one of the officers who was involved in the investigation from the Air Force. And uh, those interviews were very enlightening, um, to say the least. And um, But there again, they readily admitted that they did not have the capability to seize what they would view as perhaps pieces of the plane that could be tested for explosive re residue or, or, or even mechanical failure or things of that nature because the government of Pakistan safeguarded them and said that they would keep them uh, in country. So basically the report left as many unanswered questions as you will perhaps get today, and um, to try to uh, prove a negative is really difficult without corroboration, as you well know. 
I was wondering who else was on the plane because you've already got some heavy hitters on the plane. You've got the president <laughs> of Pakistan, oh, and then you've got a United States ambassador to the country. Were there other victims on the yes, plane? Yes, ma'am. There, there, the, um, the chief of staff uh, for the Pakistan uh, military was, a, was aboard the flight. I'm sure the ambassador had some of his assistants aboard you know, to support their mission to go to Bahawalpur to look at a uh, Abrams tank demonstration, which was being put on by uh, a U.S. defense manufacturer who was showing off the, the abilities of the tank, you know, for the Pakistan Army. That was the reason for the trip. So there was an entire list of victims. No one survived the crash. It says here in an article from the L.A. Times that 10 top Pakistani generals were mm-hmm. also on there. That's correct, because they were all invited down by President Zia and, and the U.S. military attache who was aboard the flight to view the tank demonstration. If you hear that all of these top brass were on this plane, you know, I guess you can understand why the initial thought is, Uh, of terrorism. Absolutely. So it sounds like, well, I don't want to get ahead of myself, so, but it it sounds like there is hesitation on your part, the FBI's part, that that was actually the case. Well, without, as I said earlier, without the empirical evidence as well as the corroboration for um, an actual bomb or an explosive device, we really cannot make that determination. And uh, because, you know, the proof is always in the pudding. Um, In my mind, I mean, a case of mangoes were presented to General Zia or President Zia when they departed uh, their previous uh, destination as as a gift because mangoes uh, grew quite nicely in the Bahawalpur area, uh, area of Pakistan because of the extreme heat. And that particular fruit is is really uh, a delicacy to the Pakistanis, and that was a great gift to give the president in their mind. But as to whether or not there was a bomb within the carton of mangoes, we could never obtain, you know, any residue or remnants of the mangoes to test them. Uh, there was also a theory that there was a fanatic Shia Muslim crew member who carried an explosive aboard the plane. And that this Shia Muslim crew member had at one time been a Sunni Muslim and he had converted to Shia. Well, in talking to religious scholars and imams in the, in the Muslim faith, uh, they have never heard of a Sunni converted to Shia. I mean, it, it just does not happen. You're born either Sunni or Shia. There are some Shia shrines in Pakistan that Shiites, you know, will visit from time to time, but that is about the extent of the Shiite population. And and if you know anything about the the Muslim faith, the Shiites are perhaps the most orthodox uh, Muslims that there are, especially nowadays, since the Iranians are for the majority Shiites. And there's always this friction between the Shiites and and the Sunnis even today, so... That was one theory that that was put out there, and and there was no way to validate that one way or the other. And there was another scenario involving a surface-to-air missile 
ranging from Afghan secret police firing the missile via remote control to the Soviet Union and then back into Pakistan. I mean, that was so far-fetched, it didn't even bear consideration. And then there were a few observers who refused to rule out simple mechanical failure or pilot error, you know, as you said earlier. So, um, you know, it's just one of those great mysteries, even today, what brought down the C-130. Did it seem to you that the Pakistani government wanted people to believe that it was a terrorist act? And if so, was there a reason behind it? Because when you have a president that's been uh, killed, I take it that a whole new government has the opportunity to come and take over. That, that is a very good question and very, very insightful because that is exactly what happened. And um, when you stop and think about it, I mean, no one really wanted to or, or would want to accept responsibility that it could have been you know, an accident, that the best uh, story to put out there was that it was an act of terrorism and it thus would relieve, you know, the responsibility for, for anyone else in government. And as you well know, I mean, we may have extraterritorial investigative responsibility abroad, but we still we still rely upon clearance from the host government to exercise our investigative skills. We do not have the ability to personally go out and knock on doors and develop leads and um, interview witnesses ourselves. We're totally at the mercy of the host government. And if we want to interview someone, then they will make that person available and they will sit in on the interview. You know, that is how these type investigations are conducted overseas. And it certainly is or can be somewhat stressful because you really don't know if you can trust the person who's taking you to see the, the person that you need to speak with. I mean, you, you may end up in a dark alley somewhere. I mean, who knows? But uh, in any event, that's, uh, that's a bit, uh, I'm digressing, and I'm, I'm not going to go there for the purposes of this interview, but, uh, you know, there are all types of um, things that we would consider if the crash actually occurred in the United States or in a friendly government where they would welcome you know our assistance as our assistance as it was for Pan Am 103 when it went down over Scotland you know a year earlier that was one of the most massive investigations you know that the FBI was ever involved in to re- actually recover just about every piece and part you know of the uh, of Pan Am 103, you know, with going down over water and then over land, and so the debris field was was miles wide. The C-130 debris field, you know, was much smaller, and we would have been able to collect, you know, most of the fuselage and the like, and put it in a secure little facility that where it could be examined and. Uh, you know, tested mechanically as well as forensically by every expert in the world, and we did not have that opportunity. That had to be extremely frustrating. Now, I know I did interview one of the retired agents about Pan Am Flight 103. So for those listening to this episode may find it interesting to to go back and, and listen to that again, because you're absolutely right. The access given for that investigation is totally different 
and the access for this. Now, I know that you're going to tell us about another strange thing that happened much later, but at this point of your investigation where you're pulling everything together, I mean, how long does it take for you to finish your initial investigation and how satisfied are you that you have, you know, that, you know, how complete is it? Yeah, I had all of the facts that were known at the time from the U.S. Air Force and part of the facts from the Pakistani Air Force. But there was a part of the Pakistani Air Force report that we never had access to. In fact, I don't even think the U.S. Air Force was ever granted access to it. When you talk about, you know, the military officers who were aboard the plane, you know, their particular background, um, what was really known about them other than the rumors of some uh, Sunni who had converted to Shiite and, you know, and things of that nature. I mean, we did not have access to those records. We did not have access to, you know, those type things where you would determine people's motives for perpetrating a crime, you know, whether or not uh, there were life insurance policies taken out on certain people and um, collected later. Really don't know how the how that works in Pakistan, but, uh, you know, it was not something that was even considered, you know, at the time it was not a logical homicide type investigation that we have all participated in from time to time, where you look at motive, means, and opportunity. To say how pleased was I in the results, well, I would have to say I was not pleased because there was certainly a lot more that could have been done, but by not being on the scene in August of 1988, I did not have that opportunity. So Now, I know you were told that you did not have the ability to disagree with the conclusions that's, of that's the Pakistani government. Uh, it sounds like you did disagree <laughs> well I think uh, <laughs> you know how to give a loaded question don't you <laughs> well we will let we will let that um, question remain <laughs> okay at I, the discretion I, I of the of the listener <laughs> okay all right I, I tried I tried my best okay so how long how long did you work on this? to the point where you were, okay, I've done all I can, I've gotten all the information, I know what their conclusion is, I will note that in my file, and I'm putting this file away in closing this uh, investigation. How, how, how long did you work on that? I guess I kept that. That case really remained open even after I left uh, the Washington field office because it was one of those type cases which I did, if nothing else, it would just go impending and active you know, hoping that one day you'll get some more evidence. And uh, right. so it was, it was never, it never went to close files. At that point, had the Pakistani government come to a conclusion or were they still open to possibilities, but all the possibilities that they were looking at are considering were... They, yeah, they were, absolutely. They were more concerned with finding evidence to support their theories. You know, be that as whatever it could be. And, um, but they uh, never came to a final conclusion that this is what happened and case closed. I, I never really was able to ask anyone in Pakistan that question. Um, you know, that's, um, 
the the history of the C-130, you know, dates back to, I think, uh, into the early 60s. And uh, we, the Lockheed Martin, who was the original manufacturer, sold a lot of them to a number of countries, you know, in the world, you know, at, uh, with the consent of the U.S. government. And uh, Pakistan was using this one as a presidential transport plane on that day, but it's not normally the the transport plane for for the president. They were using it because they were they thought they were going to bring some equipment to the demonstration site of the tanks and maybe bring some back and the like. So they have. Oh, a I can see. Yeah, yeah, I can see how the uh, conspiracy theories start to you know percolate when you start hearing about things that were done that day that were out of the norm. That's exactly right. Then there was a strange twist. Tell us about that. Well, the strange twist really did occur about a year later. Um, or out of the blue, a couple, I guess it was a New York Times and maybe even a Washington Post reporter. I don't exactly know which came first or what the like. But they had picked up on a story that was printed in a Pakistani newspaper to where uh, an individual uh, seeking uh, the Golden Triangle, in other words, uh, in, in, the, in the drug culture, there's an area in Pakistan bordering Afghanistan and the uh, Kiber Pass up there where that's known as the Golden Triangle where they have some of the best heroin and the best hashish uh, in the world. Well, a... African American from the city of Chicago <clears throat> was arrested in that area, not too far from Peshawar, which is in the northwest frontier province of Pakistan. And he had a backpack uh, that has some hash in it. And he also had a book on airplanes. And one of the airplanes in the book may or may not have been a C-130. And so the Pakistani intelligence service put these facts together and came up with an idea that this guy was probably one of the plotters of the attack because he had this manual. They dubbed it a manual when it was nothing more than a book on airplanes. They didn't have any information in the book on how a C-130 you know, was flown or how many gallons of gasoline it would carry or any, any of the nomenclature was was missing. I mean, it was just a picture of an airplane. And so they cited this as an example of, oh, this is probably an agent from the Israelis or the CIA who who got lost and and was, was wandering around in Peshawar almost a year later. And so he certainly must be a suspect in the C-130 crash. Well, <clears throat> before uh, we... Uh, agreed with it or whatever, we wanted to try to interview this individual to find out what was going on. And when we asked the government of Pakistan, in fact, I went back to Pakistan and met with the U.S. consulate officials in Peshawar and was told that the guy was just merely a drug dealer from Chicago and he was looking for a source of supply for some hashish. And that's what he had in his uh, back, in his um uh, backpack, as well as the book on airplanes and some other miscellaneous items. So they they held him probably for 60 or 90 days before they even 
notified the U.S. consulate that they were holding an American citizen in jail there. So the only reason why they decided to finally notify the U.S. consulate was that the individual um, was having uh, probably withdrawal symptoms from his inability to obtain his drug of supply or his, his drug of preference or, or whatever. So he he was really convulsing and was having mental issues. So they decided they better perhaps dump him back off to the American government so that he could be um, sent home. And so that is basically what happened. So when the consular officer arrived, they, he was told that he could take him. So the embassy bought... Uh, this individual, um, a one-way ticket back to Chicago. But the New York Times and the Post were trying to perhaps give some credence or some validity to their story, so they wanted to talk to the FBI about it, and they had ended up in Deputy Director uh, Ravel's office. And so um, Deputy Director Ravel, Buck Ravel, as he is known or to us, uh, sent out a message to the Washington field office for me to come to his office. So I immediately went to Mr. Revell's office and was presented with these, with these facts about this guy and was asked if I knew anything about it, having gone back, you know, to Pakistan to find out what was going on. So I explained to the reporters what I just explained uh, to you, you know, that it was just merely what was determined to be a low-level drug dealer in search of some potent hashish that he could obtain to sell on the streets of Chicago, and that in no way was he considered a suspect in, a, in the C-130 crash, which had, occur, which had occurred months earlier. So just so. bad luck. Bad luck and bad timing for uh, this uh, Chicago drug dealer. That's correct. That's That's all it was. And he became... More known after that, probably in Chicago, than he ever was before. He had had an adventure. He definitely had an adventure, especially to withstand the confines of a Pakistani prison cell all those months. The reason when we talked about what case that you, know, you were going to present, that I thought this case was different, was because in almost every other situation that I've done a case review, you know, it comes to a satisfying conclusion. Right. But this one, I guess to this day, is still an open investigation. You know, you make a very good point, and I think it is still an open uh, investigation, or it should be. But uh, as I said, some folks nowadays, because of the statute of limitations, you know, the classified part of it, uh, declassified portions of it that I thought actually needed a third-party review, and it was released, uh, you know, to uh, some Pakistani journalists who were in London a few years back. What were they going to do with that? Were they looking into it, or were they going to do a movie, or...? They were They were looking, yeah, they, all of the above. They were looking into it to try to determine what may have actually occurred, and second of all, could they profit by it? Could they come up with a book, perhaps a movie script, or something along those lines? And um, But, you know, there are those of us, and I'm sure that the Air Force investigative team, who were also, you know, on the site earlier uh, in 1988, 
really would still adhere to the to the agreement that was made between the U.S. government and the government of Pakistan, you know, not to discuss it. So what kind of unsatisfactory ending for you? Uh, very much so. Very much so. But then again, it also prepared me for other cases of this nature years later, you know, when I was assigned to Egypt and I opened the FBI office in Egypt uh, in 1995 and had some pretty interesting terrorist attacks there and saw firsthand how quickly these governments want to shut down any possibility of the appearance of terrorists because especially in countries where tourism is really an economic driver to their existence. You know, they don't want to appear that the place is unsafe and they want to always encourage visitors. So you basically have to become uh, an observer. You can offer assistance, you know, at these scenes of attack uh, in, in places where kidnappings have occurred and the like. You know, you do your best to help out given the ability to obtain their cooperation. I'd like to take some time now just to talk a little bit about about you and, and get your story. You know, when did you join the FBI? Why did you join the FBI? And the second, the third question is, did you want to work terrorism cases? Did you work terrorism cases for most of your career? Funny you should ask that, but... Um... I'm originally, I joined the FBI in September of 1978, and uh, having been more or less recruited by Carl Rowan, who was a syndicated columnist as well as the former director of the United States Information Agency, uh, William Webster, who took over as the director of the FBI in the late 70s, really wanted to do more for diversity in the FBI and wanted more African-Americans uh, as agents. And Jerry, at the time, I mean, I was a D.C. police officer, detective assigned to robbery and homicide. I was even on the scene of the, the Hanafi Muslim takeover of the district building back in 1976. I think it was 1976 in which Marion Barry who later went on to infamy with his arrest for cocaine usage right. mm -hmm. in a hotel room, was, was shot and uh, because he was a city councilman at the time. And uh, he came out of his office and he wanted to talk to the Muslim, Hanafi Muslim hostage takers to try to, you know, end the standoff. And he was shot. And so we ended up, you know, making sure he got to the hospital and basically, you know, helped save his life. So is that where you got connected or introduced to the FBI? Back no, I, got, well, I, was, I was introduced to the FBI because I handled a lot of bank robbery cases and worked hand-in-hand -hand with the agents from the Washington Field Office on daily. And I was also introduced uh, to the FBI as a teenager in Mississippi uh, after the assassination of Mecker Evers uh, in Jackson, Mississippi. And uh, there were a number of us as high school students who were out demonstrating and were swooped up, you know, by the Jackson police and garbage trucks and the like. And the Justice Department under Bobby Kennedy sent John Doerr down uh, 
was an assistant attorney general and, and a couple of U.S. marshals, and they were both African-American uh, marshals. One of them was the U.S. marshal for the District of Columbia at the time, uh, Luke Moore. And we thought it was so unique that here are two marshals who are both African-Americans carrying writs of habeas corpus for John Doerr springing our friends out of jail. And um, so I engaged uh, Marshal Moore in a conversation, and I was just in, just shocked at the fact that here was someone with the same color of skin as myself carrying a gun and, and a badge and could come down and move mountains, so to speak. And so, uh, man, I wanted to become a U.S. Marshal. So I asked him what I needed to do, and he said, well, most of us come from the D.C. Police Department. And so after that, I went into the Air Force myself, and I ended up here in Washington, assigned to Andrews Air Force Base. But I never forgot what he told me. And so when the D.C. Police Department was looking for policemen in the early 1970s, they were offering early outs to military personnel, and I took an early out and became a D.C. policeman. And basically, after I saw what the marshal's job was here in the District of Columbia, that my desire to become a marshal waned because I was having a whole lot more fun as a police detective. But my buddies from the Washington Field Office were always saying, well, why don't you come on over to the uh, to the FBI, take the test. And so that's how I ended up just on a dare, taking the exam and not really considering how well or not I would do on the exam and did quite well and ended up in the FBI. So you got your college degree on the GI Bill from your time in the Air Force? I did. Good for you. And because my father died when I was eight, he was a World War II veteran. My mother was left with three small children and I was the oldest. She couldn't afford, and my sister was just one year younger than I, and she couldn't afford to send us both to college at the same time. So I opted to go into the Air Force, and and that's how I ended up. I just basically found ways to uh, obtain an education. So it sounds like, you know, everybody knows about terrorism now, mm-hmm. but most of the public doesn't really think about terrorism before 9-11. But it sounds like you were working terrorism and those type of cases way before it was, you know, cool. Yeah, it was. In fact, uh, my first office was Detroit. And, um, you know, even in Detroit, I mean, we had situations where kidnappings of drug dealers and and the like, I mean, with the fact that they could be held hostage and some of their drug houses uh, blown up by some of the competition and things of that nature. I mean, there's really nothing new about terrorism. It's been around, you know, since the age of time. It's basically the ability of another person to strike fear in the heart of someone that he does not like or he wants to take over their particular um, uh, territory. And uh, in the cases nowadays, in, in the inner cities, take over drug, drug territory. You know, so this has gone on. So you would consider that terroristic threats also, those type of drug takeovers as terroristic uh, Yeah, ter- ter- terroristic type acts. I wouldn't necessarily define them as political type terrorist attacks that you see nowadays, you know, 
you know, but it country. gave you the but it gave you the experience to correct. work those later. That's correct. I get it. I get it. Well, I know that you retired just a year before nine eleven, and as somebody who worked these types of investigations all of your career, were you thinking you might want to rejoin the FBI? Well, it's funny. Funny you should mention that because when I had an opportunity to come back as a contractor to work in the office of the director of intelligence uh, uh, and to be a watch officer in the counterterrorism center, I was able to uh, pick up right where I left off because a number of the groups, you know, the um, bin, the, the bin Laden spinoffs uh, uh, in Morocco and other countries, uh, who were all trying to outdo. You know what was going on in Pakistan uh, with Ayman al Zawahiri and Osama bin Laden and the like. You know, I was able to jump right in and um, and help out because they basically had the same philosophy, and you know that was to hurt the U.S. government as best as they could with limited resources. And the sad thing is, is that some of their methods, you know, are quite troubling, and they kill a lot of people just to try to make a point. I always like to end the conversation by giving my guest the last word. So what would you like to say? I would just like to say that in my uh, 22 years in the FBI uh, from 1978 to um, 2000, that it was truly a worthwhile experience. Uh, I learned a lot. I met a lot of interesting people. I was given opportunities that I never would have obtained elsewhere. And um, I also am thankful that I did have the Air Force experience because in a case like the one that we just discussed, I could understand the lingo of the C-130 investigators from the U.S. Air Force. And um, just by virtue of the fact that I worked a number of criminal-type cases, I was a... uh, squad supervisor in Little Rock charged with uh, the investigation of domestic terrorism and saw how the Aryan nation and groups of that nature can strike fear into the hearts of black communities, uh, the Ku Klux Klan, the ability to meet people from you know all walks of life who are opposed to hate and what actually causes terrorism. I can truthfully say that I would not have had that experience without being an FBI agent. And uh, I'm just thankful for it. And that's the end of the interview. At jerrywilliams.com, you'll find a photo of Al Finch. You'll find newspaper articles about the investigation of the C-130 plane crash. And there's a photo of Pakistani President Zia and U.S. Ambassador Arnold Rafael. I hope you enjoyed the episode and that you'll share it with your friends, family, and associates. At the bottom of this episode show notes, you'll find social media share buttons. And of course, if you're listening to this on your phone, you can share it directly from your device. Don't forget to subscribe to FBI Retired Case File Review so that every Thursday morning, like magic, the latest episode will appear on your phone or tablet. I don't have a crime fiction recommendation for you this week. Unfortunately, I haven't been able to read anything except for my own novel as I prepare for publication. I'd like to tell you a little bit more about Greedy Givers. 
It's actually inspired by a charity Ponzi scheme that I worked. It was a fascinating case, which is what I'll be talking about in episode 123. I took that case and I fictionalized it, changed the characters and added different twists and turns. Let me tell you the premise. She believes he's a con man. He believes he's a victim of what happens when greed and giving collide. Special Agent Carrie Wheeler refuses to accept the hero label. Even after receiving the FBI and the City of Philadelphia's Medal of Bravery, she just wants to get back to work. Her new case has her investigating Cuthbert Cuddy Mullins, a self-described do-gooder who says he is changing the world for the glory of God. He's accused of running the largest charity Ponzi scheme in the country. As he attempts to convince everyone, wealthy philanthropists, donors, nonprofits, and even himself, that it's all a big misunderstanding, Carrie knows that she and Cuddy have something in common. They are both living a lie. He claims God gave him the gift to read troubled souls. Will he be able to read hers? You can purchase your copy of Greedy Givers at Amazon.com as an ebook or trade paperback on June 28, 2018. This episode was sponsored by FBIRetired.com, the only online directory made available to the general public featuring retired FBI agents and analysts interested in showcasing their skills to secure business opportunities. I want to thank you for listening, and I hope you come back again for another episode of FBI Retired Case File Review with Jerry Williams. Thank you.